And when those kind of words hit the ground in a church that has become dry and brittle for lack of love and for lack of patience, become dry and brittle for lack of kindness and lack of humility, a church that's become dry and brittle for lack of trust and lack of forgiveness, a church that's become dry and brittle because of a lack of shared hope for the future, when the sparks hit the ground in churches like that, fires rage. Chaos ensues. Untold damage occurs. People are hurt. Souls are lost. And the damage just can't be undone. To taste of what it's like to be in the middle of a wildfire, I'd like for you to listen to these words, words that were written by someone who survived a wildfire. He wrote this. He said, The wind had risen to hurricane velocity. Fire was now all around us. Banners of incandescent flames licked at the sky. Showers of large flaming branches were falling everywhere. The quiet of a few minutes before had become a horrible din. The hissing, roaring flames, the terrific crashing and rending of falling timber was deafening. It was terrifying. Men rushed back and forth trying to help. One man, crazed with fear, broke and ran. I dashed after him, and he came back. He was wild-eyed. He was crying. He was hysterical because the fire had closed in and the heat had become intolerable. We don't want to experience that kind of chaos. We don't want to experience that kind of fear. We don't want to experience that kind of damage in our church. So last week we committed ourselves to controlling our tongues so the dangerous sparks would never fly out of our mouths. And we committed ourselves to bringing rain to our church through our loving actions, loving actions that will keep the fire danger low in our church. Because that's what we want in our church. Instead of the chaos of wildfires, we choose peace. And that's exactly where James is going to take us today. He's going to contrast the peace that can come when we practice the wisdom that can only come from God. He's going to contrast that peace to the chaos that comes when we practice the wisdom that comes from the world. Let's read again from James chapter 3 and verse 13. He says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly. It's unspiritual. It's of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. He continues in verse 17. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive. It's full of mercy and good fruit. It's impartial and it's sincere. And peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. So we see that James starts out this passage with a rhetorical question. It's a question that's designed to encourage all of us to evaluate ourselves and to evaluate those who are around us. It's a question to encourage us to look at ourselves and to look around us and ask, who among us, 
who in this place is truly wise? And also to ask ourselves, am I among the wise? And according to James, true wisdom can be identified by asking another question. And that question is, who among us not only knows what is right, who not only knows what is right, but also practices what is right? Because those are the people with true wisdom. Those are the people who not only hear God's word, but do God's word. True wisdom is found in those who live out their wisdom. I recently had a conversation with someone here, and we were talking about how easy it is to set yourself up as a spiritual consultant. A spiritual consultant. How easy it is to identify the things that other people should be doing. How easy it is to identify the things that other people should have done. And there may be some value in filling that role for other people, but that, according to James, is not true wisdom. See, true wisdom, godly wisdom, is knowing what I should do and then making sure that I do it. Just like true faith doesn't come without works, true wisdom doesn't come without actions. James assures us here that good conduct, good action, is the certain outcome of true wisdom. Those who are wise will live out their wisdom. True wisdom always leads to righteous living. And the truly wise among us can also be recognized by our humility. In fact, James tells us that true wisdom cannot be separated from humility. The wise among us know that God is the source of all wisdom. And the wise among us know that we are completely dependent on God for all good things. And the wise among us know that all of us have sinned and all of us have fallen short and all of us are saved only by the grace of God through Jesus Christ. And so if we are wise, that kind of knowledge brings humility to us. It brings humility in our obedience to God and it brings humility as we live our lives and interact with each other. Paul put it this way, In the fourth chapter of Ephesians when he wrote, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and completely gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. For there is one body and there is one spirit. Just as you were called to one hope when you were called. There's one Lord, there's one faith, there's one baptism. There's one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. See, the fact that God, our God, the true God, the one and only God has called us to be his children through his son, Jesus Christ. That's knowledge that doesn't puff us up. That's not knowledge that brings arrogance. That's knowledge that brings humility. It brings gentleness. It brings peace, not fire. And that's what James longs for in his churches. And it's what we crave in our church family. Not raging fires, but peace. And controlled tongues and godly wisdom bring that peace. 
But we saw that James isn't through talking about fire, and he's not through talking about damage, and he's not through talking about chaos. For James points out to us, as surely as controlled tongues and as surely as godly wisdom brings peace, wagging tongues and worldly wisdom will bring chaos. And James also gives us the recipe for recognizing worldly wisdom among us. James doesn't ask the question, but we can ask the question, who among us is worldly wise? Because we'll show that in our lives as well. And not surprisingly, worldly wisdom doesn't evidence itself in humility. Instead, it's characterized by bitter envy. It's characterized by selfish ambition. And those things will lead to conflict, and those things will lead to turmoil, and those things will lead to disorder. That's the result of worldly wisdom. And it's the result because worldly wisdom isn't about God. And worldly wisdom isn't about you. It's not about my brothers and my sisters. Worldly wisdom is all about me. It's all about mine. And that's why James uses this strong language here. See, James wasn't satisfied to warn against envy and warn against ambition. He put some qualifiers on there. He condemns bitter envy. He condemns selfish ambition. Just the sound of those words let us know that there's something that we want to avoid. Bitter envy, selfish ambition. James says that these are the marks of wisdom. I don't know if James did the scare quotes when he wrote it, but James is letting us know that's not true wisdom. That's what other people would call wisdom, but it's not God's wisdom. James wants us to know that bitter envy is not something that we should have in our lives. Bitter envy is probably not a word that we even have in our vocabulary, but we know bitter envy when we see bitter envy. Bitter envy that appears wise to the world seeks what is best for me. Seeks what's best for me in all situations, even when it comes at the expense of you and even when it comes at the expense of others. When given a chance to choose between what is best for me and what is best for you, bitter envy chooses me. When given a chance to choose what is best for me and what is best for my church, bitter envy chooses me. Bitter envy always wants more and even wishes for others to have less so I can have more. Bitter envy wants you to have less influence so I can have more influence. Bitter envy wants you to receive less attention, so I can receive more attention. Bitter envy wants you to be less visible, so I can be more visible. See, bitter envy is all about me, even at the expense of you. And bitter envy is even all about me when it comes down to our opinions. And we all have our opinions, And bitter envy will promote and push and insist on my own opinions. Insist that they carry the day at the exclusion of your opinions and at the exclusion of other people's opinions. And bitter envy often gets its own way. And it often gets its own way by making threats. And in the church, those threats most often go something like this. If I don't get my way, I'll just leave. 
If I don't get my way, I'll just quit. Because bitter envy says there's only one way, and that's my way. And then James talks about bitter envy's dangerous cousin, and that's selfish ambition. And selfish ambition is extremely dangerous, and it's extremely dangerous because it brings competition from outside the church, inside the church. It brings war inside the church. It brings winning and losing into the church, and it brings winners and losers inside the church. When selfish ambition is played out in the church, it is a civil war. It pits brother against brother, and it pits sister against sister. And as in all civil wars, there really aren't any true winners. Everybody loses. Selfish ambition looks like the world around us. It's marked by distrust. It's marked by suspicion. It continually questions motives, and instead of one unified body, there are multiple competing bodies that just happen to be trying to exist under one roof. And selfish ambition brings the same kind of sectarian rivalries that we see outside the church. It brings those inside the church. And it brings the same kind of partisan political maneuvering that we see outside the church. And it brings that inside the church. And that inevitably leads to all kinds of chaos. The same chaos that we see outside the church is brought inside the church. The chaos that comes from angry competition over competing agendas. And I don't know about you, but I feel like James is speaking directly to me. And he's speaking directly to us. Because James knows the danger of bringing worldly wisdom into the church. James has seen the results, and we have seen the results. We've seen what happens when there's hatred, when there's discord, when there's jealousy, when there's fits of rage, when there's selfishness, when there are dissensions, when there are factions. We've seen what happens when that's brought into the church. That destroys churches. And the children of God are just just better than that. Disciples of Christ should be above all of that. See, we know what's wrong with worldly wisdom. What's wrong with worldly wisdom? Well, worldly wisdom just can't be trusted. And it can't be trusted because it doesn't come from God. Our God is a God of peace. Our God is a God of unity. He's not a God of discord. He's not a God of division. Worldly wisdom does not come from our God. What's wrong with worldly wisdom? Well, worldly wisdom lacks the life of the Spirit. James tells us that such wisdom is unspiritual. James is saying it's literally removed from God's Spirit. It has no connection at all with God's Spirit. It doesn't have the life of God's Spirit. What's wrong with worldly wisdom? Well, worldly wisdom is a door opener. It opens the door to all kinds of wickedness. James goes so far as to say that such wisdom is from the devil. Not only is this wisdom not from God, it is from Satan. It's from the father of all lies. It's from the evil one. Worldly wisdom comes from the devil. 
What's wrong with worldly wisdom? Well, worldly wisdom produces chaos in our lives, and it also produces chaos in our churches, and it leads us to baser, it leads us to lower, it leads us to more vulgar, it leads us to disgraceful, it leads us to sinful actions. And that's not what we're called to. We're called to nobler actions. And we're called to nobler actions because we are children of the one true God, the one true King. What's wrong with worldly wisdom? Worldly wisdom results in chaos and disorder in our churches, and that ruins the credibility of the church in the eyes of the world. It damages the cause of Christ. It hides his light. It nullifies our witness to the world. And it nullifies our witness to the world because our chaos and our disorder looks just like the chaos and disorder that's found among the people who don't even profess to know Jesus Christ. What's wrong with worldly wisdom? Well, we are a people who have pledged and committed to serving the Lord and serving the Lord alone. And worldly wisdom in the church demonstrates instead our reliance on the world instead of our reliance on God. Instead of testifying to our faith in the one true God. So what will we do instead? Well, what we'll do is we will seek to live our lives in the wisdom that comes only from God. Lives that are lived in love, in joy, in peace in patience, in kindness, in goodness, in faithfulness, in gentleness, and in self-control. We will live the wisdom that comes from our God. So as we have been doing throughout our study of James, we're going to end with some we will statements. Things that we will commit to do in order to keep God's wisdom in the church and in order to keep worldly wisdom outside of the church. We're going to end with seven we will statements. These will help keep us living with God's wisdom. And it will help ensure peace in our lives. And it will help ensure peace in our church. So first, to live our wisdom, we will pray for wisdom. And God who is faithful will give us his wisdom. You probably remember what James said in the fifth Verse of chapter 1, he wrote this. He said, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. So we will pray for wisdom, and God who is faithful will give us generously of his wisdom. Second thing that we will do to live our wisdom We will keep the wisdom that God gives us pure. We won't contaminate God's wisdom by mixing it with anything that comes from the world, anything that belongs to the world. To use James's language from just earlier in this chapter, he said, Can fresh water and salt water come from the same spring? And the answer is obviously no, that can't happen. They cannot So we will keep the fresh water of God's wisdom pure by keeping the salt of worldly wisdom out of our lives and out of the church. The third thing that we will do to live our wisdom, 
we will foster peace within our church. We'll foster the kind of peace that leads to contentment and security, the contentment and security that we all desperately want and we all desperately need. We will be peace lovers. We'll be peace keepers. We'll be peace makers. And we'll do that by making certain that bitter envy and selfish ambition have no place in our church. And fourth, to live our wisdom, we'll be considerate of each other. We'll be considerate of each other and we'll be considerate of each other's opinions. Which means that we'll be willing to submit to one another. And we'll be willing to submit because we know that we're all children of God. All children of the God who has rescued all of us through his son, Jesus Christ. And in knowing that, in humility, we'll be open to reason because we love and value and respect each other. Fifth, the fifth thing we'll do to live our wisdom is we will be merciful and we will be fruitful. We'll be merciful and fruitful by sharing the grace and forgiveness that God has given us, that he's lavished upon us. And we will share the blessings that God has generously gifted each one of us. We will be merciful and we will be fruitful. And sixth, to live our wisdom, we will be impartial. We will show no favoritism in our church. For we understand that we were all created in God's image. We have all been made in his likeness. And as we worship the one who created us all, we will also value and show love to those he has created. And finally, to live our wisdom, we'll be sincere. We'll be genuine. We'll be straightforward with each other. We won't have our own agendas. We'll be free from deceit. We'll be free from hypocrisy. We won't build coalitions. We won't play political games. Instead, what we'll be is we'll be single-minded in our pursuit of God's wisdom and in pursuit of God's peace. And we will never be two-faced because we have double minds. No, what we will be is we will be single-minded because we have all been given the same mind. We've all been given the mind of Christ. And we will live our wisdom. And we, Netherwood Park, will live in peace. Because we will pray and he will give. And we will keep God's wisdom pure and we will keep it unpolluted. And we will be peace lovers, we'll be peace keepers, and we'll be peacemakers. And we will submit to each other, and we'll be open to hearing from each other. And we'll share the forgiveness, and we'll share the blessings that God has given to each of us. And we will honor each other as fellow children of God created in his image. And we will be sincere and genuine with each other because we share the mind of Christ. And we will live in the peace of God's wisdom instead of the chaos of the world's wildfires. Because that's the life that God has called us to, and that's the life we want 
And that's the life that sometimes we find really difficult, we struggle to have. So I want to end our time together with this encouragement, an encouragement from Paul. And it's an encouragement to live a life of wisdom. It's an encouragement to live a life of peace in Jesus Christ. Listen to what Paul said. He said, rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guide and guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. And whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. And the God of peace will be with you. Let's pray together. Father, we lift our thoughts, our voices up to you, asking, Father, that you will give us wisdom. Pray, Father, that you will give us the wisdom that only comes from you. And, Father, we pray for peace. Father, we pray for peace in our church and peace in our lives, the peace that only can come from you. And, Father, I pray for your protection. I pray, Father, that you'll keep the chaos and the disorder and the fires of the world away from this church. And Father, I pray that the beauty of Jesus and only the beauty of Jesus will be seen in us. And that the beauty of Jesus and only the beauty of Jesus will be seen in this church. And Father, we pray this in his name, Jesus the Christ. Amen. As we end, I'm going to ask everybody to stand and we're going to sing a song together. And actually, it's not just a song, it's a prayer. It's a prayer that we'll lift to God, asking that the beauty of Jesus will be seen in us as we live our life. So let's all stand together and let's sing this song. Sing.